0: So today we're going to look at just three short points. Uh, the humble king who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So first, the humble king. Uh, Jesus uh, is demonstrated here really as the, not, just an, not just a humble king, but the ideal king. Like this is, as far as kings go, he is, he is a king of the people. Now his kingness, his royalty is highlighted explicitly in two places in the passage. One, uh, there's the quote in verse 5 from the prophet Zechariah who links the use of a donkey with the arrival of the king. Uh, This is clearly quite deliberate that Jesus is orchestrating things uh, and and certainly the author Matthew uh, is highlighting that this is evidence that Jesus is attesting to his own royalty. So there's the kingness, it's explicit there, but it's also there and, um, and it's pretty clear, but perhaps if you're less familiar, you, might, you may not pick this up necessarily. There's the shouts of the crowd in verse 9 and the children in verse 15, uh, who each of them praise Jesus as the son of David. Uh, and what they're recognizing here is his rightful royal heritage. David uh, was the second king uh, of the Israelite people. But he was the one who really united them. Uh, he was uh, a one uh, to whom God had made some pretty spectacular promises. And he really was, in, in many ways, uh, the measuring stick for all subsequent kings. Uh, as new kings are introduced, uh, they're, they're always compared back to David. You know, one of them uh, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done, and others did not do what was right uh, in the eyes of the Lord, as their father David had done. So the sons of David are the kings. So for people to be calling Jesus the son of David, they are recognising his right to the throne. Now I say I say, humble king, that's what we're looking at here, a king who is humble, but I do want to show you that Jesus' humility does not extend to denying his kingness uh, or shirking just everything to do with it. He doesn't retreat. At all from the fact that he is king. Uh, in this moment at least, maybe more than any other moment that we learn about in his life, he demonstrates complete self-awareness of the fact that he is king. As it's, it begins with him choosing to ride into Jerusalem. Now the Bible talks about Jesus doing a lot of walking but only here does it mention that he rides anything at all. In fact, here he needs to source a beast because uh, as as a group of travellers, they they don't seem to have anything to ride on. Maybe they did have uh, some animals to carry some stuff, I don't know, but it wasn't their practice to ride. So Jesus chooses to ride. If Jesus was wanting to enter Jerusalem hamming up only his humility... He would have at least just walked in, like he always walked, uh, and maybe even escaped notice altogether. Perhaps if he was wanting to really ham up his humility, maybe he would even crawl in on his hands and knees and make make a show of just how low and miserable he is. But instead, he takes actual pains to select a steed, so to speak. Uh, It says in verse 4, Uh, that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, that the king would enter Jerusalem riding on a colt, uh, which is a young donkey. Now there's two ways of reading that, Uh, the fact that uh, this is a fulfillment of a prophecy. You could read it like this, you could go, wow, what are the odds that Jesus rode in on a donkey just the way the prophet said he would? You know, who you know, if we work backwards from the fact that he rode in on a donkey, and then see that there was a prophet who predicted that, we could go, "Wow, here's Jesus fulfilling prophecy." Who could have predicted such a thing? What an amazing proof of God's foreknowledge that He predicted such an event through His prophet. But the truth is, is somewhat less mysterious than that in this instance. Now, there are prophecies that predict uh, incredible things that Jesus uh, fulfills, but this is Jesus demonstrating what what I've described as as absolute self-awareness he orchestrates fulfillment of this prophecy Um, it's no accident that he hops on a donkey and it's not even just like a, a sort of an accident of the sovereign will of God Jesus makes it so he is seeking out prophecies to fulfill because he is totally aware of his own kingship and at this point even if at many other points he doesn't, at this point he thoroughly embraces it. So if the prophet Zechariah foretold that Zion or Jerusalem's king would enter on a donkey's colt, well then Jesus would find a colt to enter on to adopt Zechariah's vision of what Zion's king should be as a public, a very public display of his royalty. And as he enters the city, the people praise him. Uh, They lay out a carpet of palm branches and their own cloaks uh, and shouting as he goes, specifically crying out the word Hosanna, uh, which means something like save us, which gives a pretty clear view of what they were wanting from him, from their king, that they wanted one to come in and save them. Uh, And and interestingly, it gives us a pretty clear view of what Jesus was coming to do uh, because he doesn't silence them like he silences people at other times. He is coming to save them, to bring salvation. Just not exactly how they thought. So this is the, the kingness of Jesus highlighted. But his humility is right there in the middle too. You, you can't escape it. it it's, a, it's a kingness that is packaged in humility. It's, it's not just packaged in it, it's tied to it. Zechariah's prophecy said, behold, your king is coming to you humble. This is a king who is humble. Even as Jesus adopts the role of king, he does it in the way uh, specifically spelled out to highlight his humility. An ordinary king would ride a mighty steed, a war horse, not a beast of burden. So I, w- I wouldn't say Jesus is a reluctant king uh, or an embarrassed king. Uh, humility doesn't insist on reluctance or embarrassment or displays of self-deprecation but he is humble. He is a king uh, who is on the level of king and on the level of the people. He's a king who opposes the proud. Since Jesus is, um, is orchestrating his approach to Jerusalem which is on Mount Zion, that's where, where that word Zion comes in, uh, in the prophecy, Uh, Since he comes in uh, in alignment with Zechariah's prophecy, let's have a look at the prophecy in its context. So this is from Zechariah chapter 9. And you'll recognize this from uh, from verse 5 in Matthew 21. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let's read on. I'm skipping a few verses, but uh, I'm really just trying to give a flavour for uh, this prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. For I have bent, this is God speaking, I have bent Judah, one of the tribes, as my bow. I have made Ephraim, its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like a lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. So make no mistake that Zechariah, who says this is a king who will come humbly on a donkey, is also saying that this king is no pacifist, right? This humble entry was just the first act in what would be a violent and total victory over his enemies. And I mean, this is what the people were waiting for. If anyone uh, among the crowd had recognised the specific imagery of the donkey or the colt, uh, and they probably did, they probably also expected, based on the context in Zechariah, that Jesus' reign would be ushered in dramatically from this point forward that he would stir up Zion's sons to fight against the occupying nations. And we do get an immediate glimpse of Jesus' judgment. But it's directed in a strange place. Instead of casting the Gentiles, the occupying forces, the Romans, instead of casting the Gentiles out of Jerusalem, he goes into the temple and casts Jews out of their own temple. Imagine, for a moment, a high-profile sporting club that's underperforming. And so the management and the board invite in an, an advisor to weed out the problems in the club. And the first step the advisor takes, having conducted a thorough audit, is to clean out all of the current board and management, the very people who invited him in. It would be a laughable, embarrassing catastrophe for the club and the managers, the powers that be. But that's kind of what Jesus does. I mean, he wasn't invited, but he didn't need to be. He is the king. But having conducted a thorough audit and examination of Israel's main problems, instead of throwing out her enemies, he makes a beeline for her beating heart and publicly rips it out in the sight of the enemies. How humiliating. This, by the way, is the Bible's most commonly recurring theme uh, when times call for reform. God's most faithful prophets reserved their harshest critiques for their own people. They didn't point fingers at blame. They looked inwards, at sin, at personal fault. Brothers and sisters... When we sense the need for reform uh, in our lives and in our institutions or in our circumstances, we must learn from the Bible at this point. We must not be, if we are to be people of this book, we must not be blamers and finger-pointers. We can't blame the woke or the left or the right or the government or society or social media for all our problems, Right? That's too easy. That's super easy. Anyone can do that. Any taxi driver can sit there and point out all the problems in the world. Nothing against taxi drivers, by the way. It's kind of nice, in a way, to have an enemy that you have no power over. It's kind of empowering yourself because you can sit in your own little bubble of pride and and make judgments on others and, and just want to wait for them to get better. That's super easy. You get to wash your own hands of responsibility that way. Now, some or all of the things that you identify out there might be crooked and corrupt. They might even be crooked and corrupt to the core. It might be true and just to critique them. It might even be somewhat productive to vocally rally against the external forces of evil. Yes, yes, yes. But Scripture insists that your first business Your most important business is to turn your own eye inward. To accept where the problems you face are the consequences of your own sin. To work within your own arm's reach to change what you can about you. And to throw yourself on the mercy of a gracious God who gives grace to the humble and to stand tall in your forgiveness, which he gives, and to fight your own sin with the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' view of what he sees in the temple uh, back here in Matthew 21 is pretty obvious from what he says in verse 13. He says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. It's interesting that it says, it is written, Uh, and in my ESV Bible, it puts the words that what is written, um, and and the subtext here is that it's written in the prophets, it's written uh, in the scriptures, Uh, it puts these words in inverted commas, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So that's in quotes, because it's from the prophet Isaiah, that's what's written. But what my Bible, and I don't know about yours, uh, doesn't do, is it doesn't put the next quote, which is also written in quote marks as well. Den of robbers is a quote, also written. Uh, So let me show you the quote. Here's where it comes from. Jeremiah chapter 7. One of these prophets who, who looks inward at the sin of the people instead of blaming it on the enemies outside the walls. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely... Make offerings to Baal and go after other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, the temple, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? So here's the picture according to the prophet Jeremiah. The people of Israel are doing as they please. They are being cruel, selfish, even serving other gods in their own time and then they quickly step back across the threshold of the temple at the required times like some kind of of get-out-of-jail-free card saying, we're delivered, we've done our peace and then they step outside again to just go on doing as they please. This phrase, den of robbers, as Jeremiah uses it and as Jesus quotes, isn't mainly highlighting uh, in, in the context of Matthew 21. He's not mainly highlighting that the animal salesman and the money changers who he casts out, that they're corrupt, although they almost certainly were. But that's, that's not Jesus' main point in, in quoting den of robbers from Jeremiah. Their den, the den is not where robbers do their robbing. A den is where a robber goes for refuge, to feel safe. The den is where they go to count their money and feel safe and untouchable. And so Jesus' critique is that people are putting on a pretty good show in the temple, but their hearts are far from God. They're coming to the temple, it's their den, it's their refuge of safety, but it's a lie because they go out into the streets and the highways and rob like, a, like, a, like thieves. Now, the modern church service is not the same as the temple. Uh, it's more a continuation, if anything, of the synagogue uh, than the temple. The body of Christ and his people are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we don't have a temple and our, our church building such that it is, uh, is not the temple. We don't draw a straight line from temple to church. Nevertheless, similar to the temple, Sunday church is where God's people gather in worship. And here's how we might repeat the sins of the people Uh, back then today you do whatever you like whenever you like maybe you lie and cheat and steal maybe maybe you don't do that so much maybe you're reasonably clean when you measure yourself against the baddies or maybe you're at least middle class enough to feel like you're untouchable from uh, from uh, other certain stigmas but the one thing we get right is getting to church on a Sunday or at least, you know, a reasonable minimum number of Sundays. So we can carry our Christian card to the gates of heaven, swipe and just walk right in. Easy. And that is really the exact thing that the prophet Jeremiah and King Jesus have exactly no time for. That is what gets people thrown out. That vision of safety is a lie that, put, that people tell themselves and it's a lie that God always finds out. Now this isn't to say, of course, this is not to say that church uh, sh- should not welcome selfish and sinners, that we, that we shouldn't welcome people who are out there um, doing dreadful things. Of course we should. In many ways we do acknowledge every Sunday that we are a gathering of the rebellious. We are a gathering of God's people, sanctified, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, but really also rebellious people who sin in our lives. We ought to be coming on a Sunday, not with pride, but with humility. We insist on repeatedly, every Sunday, revisiting our own sin in the light of God's grace. And, and, and we lay our soiled garments at the feet of our King Jesus to walk on so he might forgive us and lift up our heads and give grace to those who are humble. Which is the last point, a short point. The passage we read in Matthew 21 is, uh, is full of contrast. We've got a humble king. You, you wouldn't normally think of those things going together. Um, and then we've got immediately Jesus goes into the temple and he casts some people out and he does it viciously. And then in the very next verse, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. This same episode in the temple, he's throwing some people out and other people are flocking to him, and he's accepting them with open arms. Who are the humble in this passage? Um, it's the blind and the lame of verse fourteen. It's the rowdy children later on, the ones who are uh, singing his praise uh, that other people start scoffing and sneering at. But Jesus is is happy to have their praise. Well, how do we? How do you be humble? if, if it's the humble that gets God's grace. Um, How do we be that? How do you get God's grace? Well, there's a few difficulties here, right? One of them is that behaving with humility can be a bit of a paradox. To to put on a show of humility is sort of anti-humility to start recognising your own humility is almost to spoil your humility because you start patting yourself on the back for how, pride you've beco- uh, for how humble you've become and then uh, or you almost get drawn into a whirlpool of pride, humility, pride, humility, where, where do I even stand? There's a sort of a paradox here. I also notice that in, in the passage, the people that I'm calling humble, remember, this is a word uh, that is referred to as, Je- Jesus is referred to in the passage as humble. The passage itself doesn't call the other groups humble. Now, the people that I'm referring to as the humble, the blind, the lame, and the children, well, they didn't make themselves blind or lame or make themselves to be children, right? They, just, they are sort of considered uh, in God's eyes the, the lowly who uh, are in great need of his love. And we also cannot afford to make humility a sort of a threshold, like a work that we need to meet to earn God's favour, that would be anti-humility as well. We can't make it a thing that, uh, that you have to be humble enough. You know, you might not have to be generous enough. You might not have to, you know, uh, not swear too much. You might not have thresholds on other things. But humility, that's, that's the threshold. You've got to be just humble enough to get in. Well, how do you ever assess that? And that just becomes a work then, a striving to enter a kingdom that, that we are given by grace, by God's work. Right, right, they're the difficulties. Nevertheless, we are commanded to be humble. And it is helpful to spend at least a small amount of time c- contemplating what does humility look like, even as uh, we strive for it uh, and, um, and, um, and throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Humility is honest. It recognises that Jesus is the king. Humility, um, humility is honest about, uh, about our own skills as well. You know, Jesus is the king, but he didn't hide entirely from kingness. Imagine, imagine you're really great um, at sport. Well, you shouldn't not do sport just because you're good at it and it might make you proud to accomplish something. No, use your gift. Same with the arts, like music or, or anything else humility does not insist on hiding yourself if you happen to have skills that are that are best used in the public sphere then you need to learn to humbly still exercise those skills for the blessing and goodness and 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 good and enjoyment of others so humility is not dishonest it's honest humility is confident it's not self-confident it's not self-assured it's confident in the knowledge of who God is and where you stand in relation to Him. Humility is generous; it puts others' needs before your own. But perhaps uh, just to revisit what James said uh, in the in the verse that I first drew our attention to this morning, said God appra- uh, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble submit yourselves therefore to God submit yourselves therefore to God that is to be humble to to abandon all other hope and place your hope only in him to abandon even your own wisdom and trust his judgments about what is right and what is wrong to even abandon judgments based on what is hard and therefore may be impossible but to obey God and do what is right even if it's hard and expect that God works through your faithfulness to him Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. It means accepting His judgment, accepting what He has given you, your gifts, your skills, your family, and His grace. Accept that in Him you are forgiven. You don't have to be humble in the sense of, you know, I'm a worm, I'm nothing but dust. But I am at the very least forgiven, I am loved by God and that is all that matters and somewhere in there lies true humility let's pray God you are so good you are the measure of what is good I don't think we could recognise a truly good king if we didn't have the example of Jesus before us. To see that uh, he really did wield all authority and power and he didn't entirely uh, deflect even praise when it was due him. Uh, And yet he did lower himself and humble himself. Even on a donkey he was... Little higher than the people that he came to save. Uh, that he um, he did, he does oppose the proud. He meets out true justice, and he gives grace to the humble. We pray that you would help us to be appropriately lowly in our hearts as we draw near to you, as we submit ourselves to you, as we entrust uh, our salvation and even our life path and our deeds to your commands and your wisdom. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, our King, who laid down his life for us, that we might serve him. Amen.